0: From the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod.
1: I met many, many smart and interesting people during my years in politics and government, but Mike McFall is very much at the top of that list. A Russia expert, he served on the staff of the National Security Council under President Obama and then as U.S. Ambassador to Moscow, where he earned Vladimir Putin's ire by promoting democracy and civil society. We explored that story on a previous episode of The Axe Files, but I wanted to reconnect with McFall, who's now back at Stanford, to tap his vast storehouse of knowledge and talk about this awful war that continues to rage in Ukraine. Here's that conversation. Mike McFaul, it is so good to see you again. You're my go-to guy on all things Russia, Eastern Europe, and I've been thinking about you constantly and, frankly, seeing you constantly since this war broke out. So good to be with you. Yeah, great to be back. You know, you and I were on the same trip in 2009 to Russia, and one recollection, strong recollection I have, was when the President Obama... You were working for the National Security Council. Then I was the senior advisor to the president. He went off to meet with Vladimir Putin, who was the prime minister at the time. He was taking a little hiatus from uh, the presidency under their constitution. And um, he was supposed to have an hour meeting with Putin. That meeting went two hours. I was the beneficiary because I got to sit with Gorbachev while we were waiting. That's great, of
2: course, right? We were real late, and you were with Gorbachev that whole time. I remember that, yeah. Yeah, so I'm grateful to Putin for that. I think it went three hours, actually.
1: Whatever it went, it went long. And when the president came back, he told me about the first hour, which was essentially a monologue on Putin's part. And uh, talk about that, because it, it, it sounded like the precursor of the speech he made to the world when he started this war.
2: Well, that's a great connecting of the dots. You're absolutely right, and uh, so we're out at his house, right? His dacha, or compound, whatever you call it, where he spends most of his time, increasingly not interacting with other human beings. It's a bungalow, right? It's <laughs> so, yeah, it's like an hour out of town. <laughs> uh, it's a bunch of compounds. There's a meeting place where he always meets with people. And you know, just a, 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 funny you mention it because I was just talking to President Obama about this last week. Uh, we were also remembering that trip, and not the put not just the Putin part, but the civil society part that he did. We'll get back yes. to that maybe another later. That was important to him. But but just a couple of uh, the you know uh, color commentary things first. So I was pretty new to the government, right? Uh, so were you, but I was really new because you guys all yeah. worked together, and I'd come in from California and. I was just learning how to do this job. And that was my first assignment, David, as an SAO, a senior administrative official who's supposed to brief the uh, traveling press after the meeting. It was in a kitchen, uh, you know, at, at Putin's place. And the meeting was scheduled for an hour, like you said. And we got to minute 58 and our guy hadn't said a word. Uh, yeah. You know, <laughs> President Obama, because as you know, he's a great listener, right? And he was just listening. It was. It went on and on and on, and I was scared to death. Like, how am I gonna, uh, uh you know, tell the press that, uh, yes, President Obama listened to uh, Putin for fifty-eight minutes, and then he said "dos and we went, you know. <laughs> on our Luckily, the meeting went for you know much longer. But you're absolutely right. Uh, he had prepared for that meeting as he always does. Uh, he had a lot to say about. The previous eight years and his main point, uh, by the way, very friendly about President Bush, never attacked President Bush. It was all the deep state, you know, Cheney, all that kind of that's his world. That's the way he thinks the United States works, CIA, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, But he went on about regime change and how, you know, you Americans, you go around the world doing regime change uh, and it threatens, you know, security. It makes a mess of the Middle East. Uh, and then he got to Iraq, uh, and he had, you know, he had long thing on Iraq and president Obama said, yeah, you're right. I agree with you. And Putin was a little shocked by that. Right. He'd never heard an American say that. He said, well, you probably don't know, but I was against that war. Um, and you know, it's part of the reason I was elected president. You you tell me if that's true or not, uh, you know, yes. but um, it is right. And, and he absolutely said, absolutely true. Yeah. Yeah. And he said, we're not going to be doing regime change, you know, like that. And I remember, you know, I speak Russian so I could hear it twice and remember Putin looking at the president to think, "Okay, maybe this is going to be a different time, different era, different kind of president. Right. And most certainly President Obama was a big break with the past administration. Uh, But as you'll recall, you know, 18 months later or so, there was the Arab Spring. Um, We were reacting to that. Our administration was. We didn't cause it. We didn't foment it. We were reacting to events created by, you know, Tunisians, Egyptians, Libyans, Syrians. Uh, but in President Putin's mind, by but he was he, about, he became president back in 2012, he came back. That was all us doing regime change, fomenting revolution. And then remember at the end of 2011, the same year of the Arab Spring, there were massive demonstrations against Putin mm-hmm. inside Putin's Russia, and he blamed Obama for that. Uh, that's a, that's right around the time I became and back. Hillary Clinton, right? Yeah, Obama, Clinton, and me. Uh, um, where he said, you know, when he did it publicly, he said that that Clinton had sent a signal to the demonstrators, uh, and then his propagandists. When I showed up in Moscow that you know, later in 2012, while those demonstrations were going on. Their propaganda said that Obama had sent me to Russia to foment revolution against Putin. They thought you were CIA. They thought I was CIA, but, but you know, yes, CIA, but but even worse, like, you know, and some of the things they said, by the way, were true, uh, that I had a personal relationship with the president. That's true. That I knew opposition leaders. That was true. Uh, that we did care about democracy and human rights. That was true. That Obama did meet with the opposition when he first came to Russia in 2009. That was true. The context was very different, right? But but there's enough there that you can connect conspiratorial dots. But, but I think you're exactly right. 2009, we got the, we heard his paranoia about, you know, The expansion of democracy, and especially when it came to a country on his border, that's the reason he decided to invade Ukraine.
1: You know, you mentioned that meeting in two thousand and nine, and I was in that meeting as well. And you did assemble, you did have relationships with uh, spanning decades with uh, pro democracy groups in uh, Russia, with civil society leaders. This was threatening to Putin, was it not? Particularly as he, he he sort of slid
2: into a more autocratic form. Exactly. So so I'd say two things. If you look at the arc of U.S.-Russian relations, even before we got there in the government, the m- m- main moments of disagreement and tension uh, before 2011 were always about some democratic breakthrough that we supported and he was threatened by. So Serbia 2000 when Milosevic fell, Georgia in 2003, Uh, The Orange Revolution, as they call it, in Ukraine 2004. Those were big inflection points of tension between Putin and the West. We got there, um, and two things were different for a little while. One, uh, people forget, but President Medvedev was president when we first came in. And Medvedev was not as paranoid about these things as Putin was. Remember, uh, uh, you know, he he wanted to be President Obama's friend. They were lawyers that he thought of himself as a modernizer. And they were of a different generation.
1: You know, I think that's important as well, because uh, they both came of age after the sort of 60s, the Cold War. A lot of their careers were after the fall of the Berlin Wall. Absolutely. And they were technical. you know, in many ways they, they related as lawyers. They had a kind of technocratic understanding of things. He wasn't Putin. You know, people talk about uh, the reset and what a mistake that was and so on. But they actually got some
2: significant things done. They did uh, Medvedev and, uh, and and Obama. They did. They got big things done. They got you know they signed the New Start treaty, getting rid of thirty percent of nuclear weapons in the world. Uh, supply routes to Afghanistan. The most comprehensive sanctions on Iran ever. Uh, Russia into the World Trade Organization, and the downfall of Medvedev. We don't know for sure if he was going to be uh, pushed aside or not. But but people forget. People always think, oh, Medvedev was just a puppet of Putin, and now he is. By the way, I think he's kind of a pathetic mm-hmm. character these days, but he wasn't back then. Um, and the, the 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 moment that of of real drama in U.S. Russian relations was when Medvedev agreed to abstain on the U.N. Security Council resolution authorizing the use of force against Libya uh, because he was not threatened by. Uh, mass mobilization events. And and I was there in the meeting, by the way, David, I was we we sent the vice president to go see him. Uh, I travel. I went on that trip with vice president Biden. And uh, by the way, they wouldn't let anybody else in the room. They kicked Lover off out. The foreign minister. Yeah, yeah the foreign minister. And Tony Blinken, now our secretary of state, then national security advisor for the vice president. He's like, Mike, we cannot let the vice president go into this meeting alone. And we were literally fighting over the door to let me get in as a note taker. Um, and that's when Medvedev said, you guys are right about this, right? And so I just tell you that that's an important thing because Putin the next day, we saw Putin the next day, the vice president did. And he said, of course, you can't. We can't do any more, you know, support of democratic movements in, in uh, Libya. And when the Russians abstained on that, Putin criticized Medvedev publicly, and I think that's when he thought he'd drink too much reset kool aid. He was too much uh, wanting to be part of the West, and and then he pushed him aside. But the other thing is very important to remember: there hadn't been the demonstrations against the regime yet. The period of 2009, 2010, 2011 was a kind of opening. It was a it was a mini opening, but it wasn't hardcore dictatorship to exploit. Uh, that came later. That came after the demonstrations and after Putin became president.
1: And so really what you're saying is that more and more he came to believe these democratic movements were a threat to him. Correct. Absolutely. And his power.
2: And in Syria, as he said to us, uh, you know, I remember vividly when we met with him in Los Cabos, he and President Obama had a big argument about there's either going to be evolutionary peaceful change or revolutionary violent change. That was That was kind of the President Obama's argument. And Putin was like, no, I'm doubling down on my guy because uh, we don't want, you know, we don't want regime change. And, and you know, that was that was kind of the Arab spring. And then two years later, of course, massive demonstrations in Ukraine. Again, we didn't start it. Uh, we had nothing to do with it. Uh, they were demonstrating for a kind of crazy idea that they wanted to be a member of the European Union, by the way. It had nothing to do with NATO it Had nothing mm-hmm. to do with us. The guy that started it, I know him, his name's Mustafa Naeem. And, and he got on Facebook and said their president, Yanukovych, had just uh, abstained from signing an accession agreement with the European Union the day before. And he said, Well, we want to be part of Europe. Uh, but Putin, of course, those demonstrators, uh, he said, Well, that's the CIA. That's, you know, the Americans trying to overthrow us. And then, you know, a few months later, Yanukovych did flee in 2014. Yep. And uh, the revolution of dignity occurred, according to Ukrainians. But for Putin, that was a neo-Nazi coup uh, supported by us. Uh, and he'd been trying to undermine it for eight years, literally for eight years, using money, uh, disinformation, uh, various well, para- paramilitary things in, in the Donbas, And finally, you know, he decided to invade, to, to try to roll back that revolution. Unsuccessfully, I would say. Uh, but, but that was his intention.
1: Well, yeah, we're going to get to the present. Just one question about this: Were there, could there have been things done to interdict his moves on Crimea and some of the paramilitary things that he, as you point out, he was doing in Eastern Ukraine for the last eight years? Should the United States have done something differently? Well, I'd say two things:
2: One, we ran a play and it failed before 2014, which is to say, and this is the part of history that gets forgotten because nobody remembers. The plays that don't work, right? You and I love basketball, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody remembers that great play you ran and then the guy missed the shot. Right. Uh, it was still a good play. The non events, nobody ever writes books about non events, right? How many books have you read about the war that didn't happen or the revolution that didn't happen? We all write about events. The non event in this case was we tried to cut a deal between Yanukovych and the opposition. Uh, by the way, then Vice President Biden was very involved in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, to try to peacefully get them to agree to new elections. And we thought we had a deal. I remember very vividly the day, uh, February 22nd, 23rd, the night of that. I was at the Suchi Olympics, right, as ambassador uh, yeah. there with Bill Burns, who you know well. Uh, yes, was now CIA leader,
1: director, then deputy secretary of state.
2: One of the smartest guys we have in Absolutely. on Russia or on anything, but especially Russia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, got the text saying, Mike, you know, they cut a deal. We dodged the bullet and we thought, okay, this is going to be great. And 12 hours later, Yanukovych fled and he went to Russia. The deal fell through and he got scared to this day. I don't really understand why I went to Russia and not Donbass or somewhere else. But anyway, that was the first thing we tried to do. I think it was the right thing to do. We failed. After he intervened, uh, yes, I think in retrospect, uh, it's always easy to say in retrospect, harder in real time. Uh, we should have been more supportive of more sweeping sanctions and more military assistance to the mm-hmm. Ukrainians then. Um, as we're now doing, uh, you know, slower than I would have liked, but ne- as we're now doing, um, I think that might've helped to prevent this war. At the end of the day, I don't think so, but you know, everything's about uh, percentages and I think a greater Uh, show of military assistance and sanctions might have helped to prevent this uh, situation. By the way, though, you got to remember there's this interregnum called the Trump era. Yeah, I remember that. You remember that? Uh, uh, There was this period. And remember, no matter what happened in 2014, 15, 16, uh, when Trump came in, everything changed because Trump, you know, embraced Putin and Trump didn't support the Ukrainians. And so even... Had you done the right things in fourteen fifteen, uh, that all got unraveled uh, rather tragically, in my view, in the Trump era.
1: Yeah, Trump. It, it, it's now sort of been lost in all that's followed. But his initial reaction to the invasion this time was that it was a, an act of genius on yes on Putin's part. It doesn't look like an act of genius now. Yes. Why? You know, Putin. I mean, nobody really knows Putin, I guess, is the truth, but you probably know him as well as any American knows him. It seems like he badly miscalculated here. Yes. Yeah. In many different ways, he miscalculated about the strength of his own military, He miscalculated about the willingness of the Ukrainians to resist. He miscalculated about the level of unity that the West could achieve in opposing his views. He miscalculated on their willingness to level sanctions. Um, this is an old intelligence guy. How did he
2: miscalculate
1: so badly?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. I've thought about it a lot. And yes, you're right. I I, first met Putin in 1991, and I've written about him. I wrote my first article. deputy mayor then. He's a deputy mayor in St. Petersburg. Um, I was there as with the Democracy Promoting Organization, by the way, David, the National Democratic Institute. Think of the ironies of that. I'm sure Putin remembers that. He does. I know he does for a fact. I know he does. Uh, I can't tell you how I know that, but I do. Um, (laughs) uh, And uh, you know, I wrote my first piece wording about him as an autocrat in March of two thousand. Just so you know, Uh, I was worried about these proclivities and here we are. So we're not Facebook friends, but we have a long we have a long history. That's true. And I was one of the first Americans to get put on his sanctions list. A couple of things I would say first remember he's been in power for 22 years and what happens to anybody in power that long but especially autocrats is they stop listening to their advisors you know the axle rods of the world i i know your counterparts in russia david just so you know people who had had a similar job to you over time in the early years he used to listen to them his his political advisors uh this guy in particular uh over time it's like i know everything well i don't need to listen to it Yeah. Advisors. That's number one. Number two, um, uh, he doesn't listen to the international people either. When he was first on the world stage, he had some buddies: Berlusconi, Schroeder. Uh, he he listened. He 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 had a relationship with Bush. By the way, um, today he's got nobody that he thinks is his equal. Uh, Xi Jinping is the only guy he listens to. Uh, number three, in his inner circle, he, he's surrounded by. You know, these, they call them the key, the kind of the hardliner types who work for intelligence and the military. And in this particular case, he really leaned on the intelligence officers. Uh, we now know this and didn't listen to his military folks. And, and you need to know what well, your listeners need to know. There's a long history of tension going all the way back to Stalin between, you know, the KGB and the generals and how they see the world differently. He leaned on the KGB types. And then finally, well, two more things. Uh, remember, he's, this is his fifth war. He won the last He's had war, pretty good right? luck. He's had good luck, but there were little warrants, right? But it's a classic case of overreach when you've been in power too long. So Chechnya, 1999, Georgia, 2008, Ukraine, 2014, Syria, 2015. He won all those. So he's on, he's on a roll. He thinks he can have a cakewalk here. And then finally, you already alluded to it, but but there was, and there has been, you know, this notion that Ukrainians are soft. Uh, they're not tough guys like Russians. They had a very, uh, you know, flippant opinion about Zelensky. They t- completely misread him. I've, I've gotten to know Zelensky, by the way. Uh, I hosted him at Stanford last year, and I've been in touch with him recently. He is a badass. He is a, a really an incredible politician as well as leader and they miss like that. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files.
1: And now back to the show. I think most people would agree he's, you know, he's emerged as sort of a latter-day Churchill here in this in this war. But I think it's a mystery to people how one makes the transition from sitcom star to wartime president. I mean, sitcoms are not generally the crucible in which uh, wartime leaders are born. So what is it about him? You seem not to be surprised by the resilience that he's shown. What is it about him that
2: allowed him to make that leap? Well, I'd say a couple things. One, he was, remember when he was elected in 2019, he was, he was the outsider like Trump, right? He was the protest candidate. Uh, There was one other that was going to run, Salam Karchuk Kharchuk is his name. He's like the Mick Jagger of Ukraine. Uh, I know him well too, by the way. And when, when Zelensky decided to get in, um, uh, there was going to be a strong protest vote there. I mean, you know, people that Understand Ukrainian electoral politics predicted this, and that gave him power not to be beholden to the oligarchs and everything else. So he's an independent. This is, by the way, this mirrors his sitcom. Exactly. I mean, his his sitcom was about
1: a history teacher who went off on the politics of Ukraine in his classroom, and a kid surreptitiously films it, puts it on YouTube, and all of a sudden there's a draft movement, and he he becomes president. I mean, it's sort of kind of eerily, it It is.
2: is, Yes. When fiction becomes reality and people should go watch it. It's on Netflix now. It's a great, pretty entertaining. Actually he's, and he's very good. He's very good. So, so one, he had that Two, as I was talking to one of his aides, uh, early in the war and, um, uh, just by way of background, we the institute i run out here at stanford david we've had a training program for human rights activists around the world i think we've had about 300 ukrainians in our various different programs mm-hmm. so we have this deep network of of friends in ukraine i was talking to one of them who works for zelensky and we were talking about this question about whether he should go to Lviv, maybe go to poland you know charles de gaulle because it would be horrible if he was killed and and back then remember Putin was saying denazification was one of yes. his goals. That meant to kill him. And at the end of it, uh, my friend's name is Sergey. He said, "Mike, you know this is all abstract because he's not going anywhere because he has decided this is his moment in history. This is his fate. And when you have that moment of clarity, then then suddenly trivial stuff literally feels trivial. And I think he just had that moment of clarity from the very beginning when he said he put that video out and he went on the street and he said." Um, we toot, right? We are here uh, as a kind of, you know, you know, F you Putin. We're not going anywhere. And yeah. then everything became crystal clear for him. That's the second one. And then the third one, though, and, and you know a little bit about this. Um, he is a talented communicator. Uh, yes. He does understand social media. He's got an incredibly talented young group of people that kind of reminds me of, you know, the young people I met who all work for you uh, you know, uh, then later came on into the white house who, who understand new communications and, and, you know, do things, uh, in a very clever way. In fact, let me, can I share two anecdotes about this please. personally? I was out at the, in Philadelphia a few weeks ago, speaking at the democratic caucus retreat, uh, Nancy Pelosi was hosting and, you know, Nancy's out here where I live and if Nancy asked me to do something, I'd do it. Um, yes, that's, that's why. Uh, that's, that's what you do. Uh, yes. I just I just did another event for her last week. In fact, um, uh, I'm a huge fan of hers. And so she, you know, I didn't want to go to Philadelphia, but she told me I had to. So I showed up. Um, so 200 members of Congress are there. I'm on. I'm the dinner speaker with uh, Secretary Mayorkas on a panel. The luncheon Homeland speaker. Security, is,
1: yeah.
2: Homeland Security, Homeland uh, Security. The luncheon speaker the next day is President Biden, okay? And two hours before I go on, I wanted to get the, the latest feel from what's, what's going on in Q. So I hit my Skype button to talk to my friend who works for the president. Um, I hit Skype. And instead of my friend, it's Zelensky sitting there. Uh, and I was like, yeah, <laughs> Mr. President, what are you doing here? Uh, I said, Mike. You know, you know how he talks. He said, Mike, yes. you look just like you did when we were out in California. Uh, he loves Stanford, by the way. He just, he, he's like, man, we need a place like Stanford here in Ukraine. And I said, Mr. President, you don't, you know, you got your beard and your your T-shirt. Uh, and, you know, we talked for 20 minutes or so. It was, a, you know, it was a pretty crucial moment in the war. But that wasn't on accident, David.
1: Yeah, you know, of course, he knew you were going to see the president. And
2: yes, yeah. he knew where I was going next. And right. guess what? It Did it work me up? Absolutely. Did I, you know, do, say all the things he wanted to? Did I get Nancy Pelosi to lead them all in a standing ovation, you know, to support Zelensky? So it was just brilliant. Like it's just, he, they, he, they get to know little things. All of these
1: appearances he's made before legislatures around the world. Yes, have been so sophisticated. Uh, the yes. invocation of national symbols in these democracies, whether it's Jerusalem or Washington or elsewhere, has uh, bespoken a real level of sophistication. Yes. Secondly, the introduction of of videos into these talks are because video and film can be so evocative, and they know yes. how. To use it, and the third thing I'd say is the contrast with Putin has been so striking. Yeah, Putin, you yes. know, hunkered down in the Kremlin, in you know, in a kind of nineteen eighties tableau, and uh, <laughs> yes. and Zelensky on the streets, yes. delivering messages. That in and of itself is just a powerful thing, uh, you know. And I, I assume that when uh, Putin, uh, you know, appeared in that stadium and so on, that someone said to him, "Hey, you got to get out of." The office here because this guy's making you look cowardly. Exactly. It's been something to watch. But you're right, the communication skills are one of the things that stand out. You know, people, maybe even uh, I at the time, I don't know, uh, you know, had questions about Reagan and, you know, the actor. He was an actor and all of that. But I remember that FDR once wrote a letter to Orson Welles calling, and he told Welles, You're the second best actor in America the implication being that he roosevelt was the first best actor in america right. there right. is a performance uh, element to, to all of this and zelensky has that that said where do you think that we are and how long do you
2: think this will go on and how do you how do you see it ending yeah my first answer is i don't know and you should not believe anybody that well, what gets what the hell on man you're podcast, the expert said. but if anybody gets on and says they do you know uh, You know, there's a lot of not an expert. Yeah. There's this business, you know, uh, in the consulting world of, you know, getting people like me to talk to companies for lots of money. And I I really participated in it, but I know about it. I do it. I used to do it more often than now, but they're always, you know, that, you know, Wall Street guys always want to know your baseline and they always want to know your percentages, right? Like this. uh, So I don't, I don't play that game Uh, because I just think it's just absurd. People are just making things up. But I'm still going to answer your question in a couple of ways. First, Putin has lost the war already. So I want, and I'm going to tell you, I'm going to explain that. But I use the word war, not battles. So remember what Putin told us uh, and I watch Russian TV, so you don't have to. So uh, <laughs> I watched him uh, for an hour when he rambled on about trying to explain the war, by the way, in a, in a rather inarticulate, ineffective way in contract yeah. to Zelensky. It was, it was long. Like, I could barely stay awake for it. Uh, you know, I can't imagine. Yeah, it was a harangue. Yeah, it was just going on and on all over the place. Uh, actually, somebody used to work in the Kremlin uh, texted me after it and he said he he obviously doesn't have any staff anymore because that was a mess uh, in terms of speech writing. But, you know, he said he said a bunch of things. Let's remember because people need to remember. First, he said Ukrainians are not a real nation. Uh, you know, they're just Russians with accents. Uh, they need to be part of Russia and the Russian. We need to bring them back in. He failed to do that. Second, he said denazification, which is regime change, killing Zelensky, putting his puppet in. There were even some names floated as who would be the new. You know, leader of Ukraine, that he would install that failed. Let me
1: stop you right there because yeah. we should explain to people. I think most people who are listening know this, but denazification is that that hits a very very hot button. Yes, in Russia, where memories of uh, World War II and the battle with the Nazis still looms large, particularly with older Russians who are his base. Yes, and in fact, they're the anniversary of. Uh, I guess the triumph over the Nazis is coming up on May 9th. Right. And there's a whole bunch of speculation that he's going to want to come to some resolution by May 9th where he could declare victory over the Nazis.
2: Correct. And and it's good you you hit the pause button there. I think that's really important for people to understand. You know, as ambassador, I went to those midnight celebrations on Red Square and watched the ICBMs aimed at us roll through. Um, It is a quasi-religious event. Uh, because it's the most important date in Soviet and Russian history. And and by the way, rightfully so, uh, they did defeat Nazism. Uh, We had something to do with it, but they did. Also, Ukrainians did too, let's not forget, Mm -hmm. and Estonians and Georgians and uh, Armenians. It wasn't just Russians, uh, the Soviet Union did. But you're absolutely right. He's using that word on purpose. To make the connection back to forty-five, like we we defeated Nazis once, and now we have to defeat them again. I mean, completely false, falsely. Let's be clear, right? And linked um, to the
1: falsehood that Ukrainians were waging war, a war of aggression against Russians in Eastern Ukraine. Correct. And
2: and the absurdity, the the Orwellian absurdity of the language, goes deep in that one. The 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 chief Nazi is a Jewish. Yes. Kid from Eastern Eastern Ukraine, whose Zelensky native tongue is. Zelensky, whose uh, native tongue is Russian, by the way, Ukrainian yes. later, uh, and the liberation and the protection that he's allegedly doing of ethnic Russians—that's what he tells people back home. Uh, he's actually slaughtering them. Uh, you know, the city of Mariupol, which we've seen a lot of. You know, I can't remember what it was right before the war, and I don't know what it is now, but you know. It's thirty percent ethnic Russian and seventy percent Russian speaking, yeah. so he's not liberating them. He's killing the people he claims to be liberating, but that's failed now. So denazification, I think, has failed. Uh, destroying the Ukrainian armies failed. The, then, then you know, he the battle for Kiev and and Kharkiv. He wanted to seize the major cities, that failed, uh, and I think the battle of Kiev will be written in Ukrainian history books is one of the most important seminal uh, events, you know, it'll be like the Battle of Gettysburg for Americans. It'll be mm-hmm. a huge, huge event uh, of, of identity uh, uh, for Ukrainians. He's failed then. So now he's changed the mission and he said it very explicitly. This is a special military operation in defense of Donbass. That's the new phrase they use. They never, they didn't, they didn't used to say in defense of Donbass. Now they add that. Um, and so what he wants to do is connect Crimea in the South to Donbass in the East, uh, take all the cities in between. And then I think he wants to declare victory after that. I don't, I think he's, they're threatening to take Odessa and Moldova and, you know, maybe if they have a lot of momentum, they'll do it, but I don't, I I don't hear it in his voice. Um, uh, and then I think it'll be a kind of, you know, divided country and then, the onus will be on uh zelensky to make hard decisions will he accept some ceasefire that divides his country permanently yeah that's a difficult decision for him isn't it i mean because he's
1: rallied the country to expel the russians to keep the country together um i mean it's a that's a really really
2: hard calculation yes for him i agree and it's changed over time. So, David, when I talked to him a month, ago, three month, three weeks or so ago, and you know, he said he said this in public, so I'm not revealing anything I shouldn't. Back then, he was talking Just about you and me. You
1: can reveal anything you want.
2: Okay, all right. Uh, but you know, when they were bombing Kiev, that it felt like the you know the correlation of forces were against them. Uh, he he said some pretty profound things uh, in terms of his willingness to compromise. One was he said he was ready to think about neutrality right. in return for some security guarantee from the UN Security Council. Right. But two, on the borders, he was willing to think about, uh, agree to disagree about where the borders are, but agree to only reunify Ukraine through peaceful means. Mm-hmm. Um, but today, two things have changed. One, um, we've seen these horrors of, of the slaughter of uh, people that, you know, in Bucha and Mariupol that Putin did. I think that makes it harder for him to compromise. Uh, two, uh, Putin's taken more territory now. So to reward war, uh, that's going to be hard. And three, there's momentum now. The Ukrainians feel like they have some momentum. So uh, most certainly, uh, I think we're just going to have to see who wins the Battle of Donbass, right? That's the, and, and wind is can be defined in very different ways. Um, If it ends in a a stalemate, then maybe that creates the permissive conditions for a ceasefire.
1: Let, Let me ask you two things, one parenthetical and one really critical. The parenthetical one, and I should have asked earlier, what if Zelensky had left? How would the story be different if Zelensky had left the country? Because, you know, for those who don't believe one person can make a difference, it seems like this is the prime example where this guy essentially inspired the whole country to believe that they could resist. I agree.
2: And and I think I teach here at Stanford and and I teach classes where we try to measure the impact of individuals versus socioeconomic forces. It's one of the big debates in political science. Uh, I tend to lean on this idea that under certain conditions, individual leaders can have a giant impact. Uh, in Russia, for instance, the the accidental uh, choosing of, of Putin as president in 2000, it was completely accidental. Had a very negative uh, impact on future history of Russia. Had it been another guy that I knew well, Boris Nemtsov, I think that the story yes. in there could have been very different. You met Nemtsov, by the way, uh, in that roundtable that we did with Obama. He was later assassinated, Murdered. in two thousand fifteen. But here's the opposite. I think that's true. Uh, that's why he stayed. And you know, I, I participated, as you might imagine, uh, sometimes with government officials, uh, even one time with the president. Uh, oftentimes, with external folks, uh, the the best experts in the world about Russian military versus Ukrainian military. I, I don't want to pretend I'm one, but I know most of them, uh, and I remember all the predictions about uh, this war and what we were doing, what they were doing is they were counting soldiers, they were counting tanks, and they were counting dollars spent on military, Russia versus Ukraine, and what they couldn't count is will to fight, because mm-hmm. uh, that's hard to count. Well, now we know that that variable, to put it in my language, that factor turned out to be incredibly important. And that's what Zelensky inspired. And and I, I you know, I talk to Ukrainians pretty much every day. Uh, they all say the same thing, that he stayed meant that they all had to say. Yes. And, and to fight, and and these, these incredibly courageous people still fighting in Mariupol, right? There's there's everybody was predicting that they would have been slaughtered by now. And they're inspired by Zelensky's, uh, you know, willingness to stay and and live in the bunker and, and defy Putin. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files.
1: And now back to the show. interesting to think how putin processes this because you mentioned boris Nemtsov. he was murdered obviously on orders from uh, putin alexei navalny uh who is another leader of the democratic uh, movement in uh in russia is now in prison having been poisoned and then returning to uh to russia and uh someone you introduced me to uh uh, Vladimir Karamurca, who was a protege yes. of Nemtsov, yes. Yes. returned to Russia and was arrested. You said in early April that you thought he'd be um, released shortly and would return. Now they've uh, added charges and that carry 10 years imprisonment. W- what is your uh, and and Vladimir was a, because of you, he was a fellow at our Institute of Politics here. Absolutely. Of course,
2: I remember now. Yeah. What do you think is going to happen to him? Well, I was wrong about that, obviously. And I'm worried that he's like Navalny. Um, by the way, another badass like Zelensky just, uh, and I encourage people, there's this great film that that was just on CNN on Sunday night. On uh, Navalny, I, yeah. On Navalny, if you get the chance to see it, uh, it's a fantastic film. Uh, A, because of the story it tells about Navalny and his family. Uh, His daughter, by the way, did it, goes to school here at Stanford, Dasha. Um, uh, But B, because it's just just as a documentary film, it's just incredible. And the courage that he had after, you know, near death, going to Germany uh, to survive, rehabilitating, then going back, knowing he might spend the rest of his life in jail. And then Volodya, Karboza, Vladimir, uh, our, 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 your fellow, my, my friend, um, he may now also sp- spend a long time in jail. And I would just say two things about that. Just remember, in this horrible war, this horrible genocidal, I, I, can't, rem- I can't even come up with an adjective to describe it anymore. And I don't even like the word war, by the way, because I don't consider it war to send cruise missiles to kill babies. That, that doesn't sound like the way I think of yeah. war. So, so, but whatever it is, it's horrible, awful. Putin's responsible. Lots of Russians tragically support it, but there is uh, a, a real minority of really brave Russians that don't, and we should not forget about them. Um, uh, a, um, and B. I think the fact that they have to arrest—I mean, I think now in retrospect, why did they try to kill Navalny? That—that that was all in preparation for this war. Right. They didn't want him out there on the streets protesting the war, as he did from jail. It reminds me of Martin Luther King, you know, a a letter from, uh, you know, Moscow jail calling on people to go out and protest. And he kind of echoed that letter, by the way. He said, you know, there's no more standing on the sidelines here. You know, there's no more. I I get I know who evil is and I know who my supporters are. It's all of you in the middle that 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 the you know, you need to stop just being in the middle. That was kind of his message. But I I think that it it says, I think in retrospect, that that was not by accident. And then he closed down a couple of their major independent media stations. Yeah. The fact that he has to, I think, underscores that he's incredibly insecure. And maybe all those opinion polls that we read, uh, as one of my Russian friends says, yeah, Mike, it's like doing opinion polling in the Gulag. Take it with a grain of salt. But maybe you know Putin's not as secure at home as as uh, sometimes we are led to believe. I don't know how you actually pull accurately in a circumstance
1: like this because uh, if people are fearful uh, that of expressing themselves and they don't really know who's asking the questions, exactly why would they answer? Uh, exactly. Why would they answer truthfully? One thing that occurs to me, Mike, is um, you know Zelensky in some ways. I mean uh, Putin kills off these uh, or imprisons these uh, charismatic leaders who he fears could lead independence uh, movements, democracy movements. I'm sure that Zelensky's performance here only redoubles his concern about these charismatic young leaders who, could, who can whip up public support behind uh, these democracy movements. You are
2: absolutely right. And that is what he fears the most, You know, that's the original reason he invaded Ukraine, because remember, his argument back home is we Russians, we're a special kind of people. We have a special culture and we're not we're not like those decadent liberals in the West. And, you know, this meeting uh, that I had with the vice president back in 2011, he he's very theatrical in these meetings, David. Putin is. You're saying Putin, not Biden. Putin, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah Biden's not theatrical, but Biden's pretty blunt. Yeah. But at one point in the meeting with Biden, he said, you know, you you guys look at us. And he went like this with his, he, he took his finger and he traced his skin, his white skin. He says, you look at us and you think we're like you because we look like you, but we're not. Uh, and what he wanted to say is we're not European, we're not democratic, we have these different values. So when Ukrainians that he claims in one breath are Russians with accents, But on the other hand, are living in a democratic society. That's a contradiction for him. And then compounded by this charismatic Zelensky guy, you're absolutely right. It is, that's what he fears the most. You talked about the closing
1: of independent media in Russia to the extent that there is support for what he's doing. And, you know, we hear these stories of Ukrainians calling their relatives in Russia and their relatives saying, that's not what's happening here. Right. The, he, and they basically buy the Putin line. You you just had our old principal uh, President Obama there to give a speech on disinformation earlier this month. We had a conference on disinformation here with him and others at the Institute of Politics uh, with the Atlantic at the University of Chicago. How do you counter that? How do you penetrate this tightening veil of of disinformation that that Putin has mounted? And how do you get information using some of the same tools, digital tools that are now available? How do you get information to people that they find that they can find credible?
2: Yeah, well, I think it's a giant, important question, both for how we deal with Russia, but other autocracies around the world. Uh, You know, earlier in our conversation, we were talking about the importance of communications. Uh, I think this is, I, I applaud the Biden administration on what they've done for NATO, what they've done on military assistance, sanctions. Uh, as I say to them, David, when I talk to them, you get ACE for this week, uh, but it's just the midterm. Now you got to perform next week, right? I say that as Professor McFaul because the real grade matters in terms of who wins the war. So stop pounding yourself on the back and do more in the next week. But on the communications part, I think we as a country... And we in the the liberal, democratic, free world got to think harder about your question. I don't think we're doing well enough in many different ways, both on the te- technological part, but also on the content part. With, and that's a bigger question maybe for another day, but it's really, it's weak. It's it, We're underperforming in my view. And we kind of got out of the habit because we thought the whole world wanted to be like us and now they don't. And we, we've forgotten some of our old uh, ways of fighting propaganda, but also promoting you know, alternative ideas, it's not just anti, there's too much anti in my view, Uh, you know, kicking people off of Twitter, uh, you know, delisting them, anti, anti, anti. I want us to be more on the pro side about ideas. With respect to Russia, I would put it this way, in ways that I think will sound familiar to you. So I used to write about public opinion in Russia, you know, uh, when I was uh, doing academic work before joining the government. And to oversimplify, but it's pretty clear, The demographics of Putin's voters versus Navalny's. Putin's voters are the older you are, the more rural place you live,
1: the less education you have. Well, those three, you're describing a pattern that we see all
2: through Western Europe and and the United States. Right, right. And then the vice, you know, the Navalny supporters are younger, more educated, richer and urban. Those are Mm -hmm. the four, right? Yes. Uh, It's just clear. And it's exactly like in our country, like, uh, you know, better in, in most of Europe it's it's just crystal clear uh it's just it, it's been that way for a long time the people in the in the putin bubble you know let's let's say that's like 30 40% it's probably more like 30% uh they're unreachable uh it doesn't matter what information you give them uh, they've lived in that bubble for you know a long time now they kind of remind me of trump supporters and and i have relatives or trump supporters so it doesn't matter to my you know my relatives what i tell them about the truth in, you know, anywhere, uh, they're, they're in that bubble and I don't think they're reachable. Then there's uh the, you know, they're the Navalny supporters. These are kids that don't watch TV. Uh, they get mm-hmm. all their, they get all their information from YouTube. By the way, YouTube is a critical platform for Navalny and other places. And they're, they're over there, you know, let's call them 15 or 20%. The fight is, is in the middle. Uh, they have a word for it in Russia. It's called the swamp between the two. Uh, um, and that's that's where you do see preferences vary and that's where the focus of attention needs to be and that's where putin has tried to constrain uh information flow into exactly that kind of demographic so you'll notice for instance he banned some things but he didn't ban uh whatsapp because they all 120 million russians use whatsapp so you don't want to alienate the, those people uh, he also didn't ban youtube yet because youtube is where a lot of that, that that demographic in the middle I was describing, they're there for for their cat photos and all you know mm-hmm. the normal uh, Facebook, uh, co- uh, normal YouTube content. But I wouldn't be surprised if things go on that he'll go after that as well. You talked before about
1: stalemate. You know the question has always been if he's faced with a stalemate or a loss, how far will Putin go? And I know you've said you don't think he'll. You you know broadly use nuclear weapons. You don't think that he'll launch a chemical attack. He might launch a tactical nuclear weapon. Is it possible that he feels so cornered? I ask you that because you know the Secretary of Defense said the other day, our Secretary of Defense, that the goal was to degrade Russian military so that they can never do this again. I'm thinking if I'm Putin and I'm sitting there, that sounds like a pretty menacing comment. And the next day, Lavrov comes out and says don't think nuclear war isn't a possibility. Like, how do you evaluate all of this and
2: where Putin sees the line? Yeah, well, those are really hard questions. Uh, and I don't want to pretend I have good answers. And and I want to defer to those that have better access to intelligence than I do right now. And our friend Bill Burns was just talking about this last week. He was down at Georgia Tech and he said two things, one that got quoted by the press and the one that, that didn't. I'm just paraphrasing now. He said, we should never take lightly threats of the use of nuclear weapons, and I completely agree with that. Uh, and that was the headline. Uh, mm-hmm. But the second phrase he said is, "We have seen nothing to suggest that they're changing the conditions under which they would use nuclear weapons," and that that gave that made me feel more comfortable. Um, you know, I would say two things on the threats. I think after in the beginning, Putin was even threatening nuclear war against us, putting his weapons on alert and all that. I think we now. And because he deliberately put some people out, his former president, Medvedev, spoke on this, his former press, his press spokesperson, uh, Dmitry Peskov, they said very clearly, and they said it, Peskov, by the way, was on the PBS NewsHour, right? Uh, He was there deliberately to say, we'll only do this if there's an existential threat against our country, use strategic nuclear weapons against the United States. And there isn't that threat. And so I think that I think that's a very low probability event. Second, on the attack on NATO, uh, something I know many were worried about in the beginning of the war. I also think that has faded in probability because, you know, if you can't take Madyupol, uh, how are you going to take Tallinn or Berlin? And I just think the idea that Putin would, in this moment when they're really struggling inside Ukraine, to attack nato the largest military in the world anchored by the most powerful military in the world he's he's upset he's angry but he's not suicidal i just i think that's unlikely what i worry about is a tactical nuclear weapon in in ukraine i think that that is a genuine concern as a kind of way to try to end the war um i still think it's a low probability
1: event it also doesn't fit into this if you can call it a sweet spot it's an ugly spot where he thinks it could create a, a, a strategic question for the West as to how to respond. It's obvious if he attacks a NATO country, if he uses a, a nuclear weapon against a NATO country, if any of those things, then he's going to get a response. But what does, what does NATO, what does the U.S. do if he uses
2: a tactical
1: nuclear weapon
2: in Ukraine? Really hard choices. Uh, I don't think they have great choices. My guess would be some kinetic response maybe from the base that launches that tactical nuclear weapon but i don't know i think that's a really that's a really hard question for our colleagues in the government
1: today uh russia cut off energy deliveries to poland and romania eastern europe is very subject to that pressure because they're deeply relying on russia for energy what will the impact be of that and in terms of the sanctions the us has or 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 the allies generally have imposed among them have not been sanctions of the energy sector, presumably because Eastern Europe is sensitive to that. How does this whole energy issue shake out? Because this is the power that he has, and he's also funding his economy and his war based on energy profits.
2: Yep, directly. And you know, I I coordinate a working group on sanctions of uh, Americans and Ukrainians and Europeans. We just issued a paper. On, it's on our website at the Freeman Spogli Institute. For those who want to get into the details. Uh, but we have a big section on oil sanctions and less on gas. And we believe it is the next phase uh, in terms of what needs to happen. And we don't think it's impossible. You know, the Europe, some European politicians say this will lead to, you know, depression, economic collapse. Uh, experts, more expert than I say, that's not true. Uh, there are many ways to do it, by the way. There's not just zero or 100. You can put an import tax on that oil. Uh, and then Putin will be, you know, have to decide whether to send it or not and compete with prices or not. Uh, you can do escrow accounts as we did with the Iranians when I was in the Obama administration, where we didn't cut off their export of energy. We just said, you couldn't get the money back except for certain, uh, you know, humanitarian Mm -hmm. things. You only got the money back when you agreed to the nuclear deal and people say, well, Putin will never agree to that. We'll test the proposition. Mm Mm-hmm. So you think this is a live prospect? I hope it's a live prospect. Uh, you know, my analytic hat, hat says I'm I'm worried, but I my normative hat says this is what has to be done now because literally, if you're in Europe, you are funding Putin's killing machine. It's just it's just straight up. You are sending the money that funds uh, that killing machine. So have no illusions about what you're doing, and and I want you to feel uncomfortable about that fact.
1: Well put on one last hat as we close out and that's the hat of a guy who's spent his entire life studying Russia, living in Russia, associating with Russians. Karamurza, before he was thrown in jail said and he said from jail he wrote a letter from jail that uh, or a column in the Washington Post from jail that he was optimistic that we are there's going to be a big change in Russia. You know, they would say it's always darkest before the storm. Do you think that we are closer to change in Russia as a
2: result of what's happening now? I do, but with some caveats. Remember there was another guy that ruled Russia for a long time, a couple decades, he went on a big run in the 70s. It seemed like history was on his side. His name was Leonid Brezhnev. Uh, a bunch of communist regimes took over Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, Angola, Mozambique, and even Nicaragua, and it just seemed like they were uh, in the ascendancy and and remember David You know, this was a pretty tumultuous time in America. The late 60s, civil rights movement, we were killing our leaders. We were fighting over the war in Vietnam. Then we had a president who resigned. And if you look at what Soviet leaders back then were saying, it was just a matter of time until we were were done and they were going to take over the world. And now you, you had, you know, leaders, Putin in Moscow, Xi Jinping in Beijing. That's what they've been saying. And then he overreached, just like Brezhnev did. That's when Brezhnev went to Afghanistan and he's like, oh, this is going to be easy. They'll just become the 16th Republic of the Soviet Union. we got Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan. We're just going to add Afghanistan. And he grossly miscalculated there. I see a lot of parallels here with Putin. In power too long, overreached, miscalculated. And, and this will be the beginning of the end of Putinism inside Russia for sure. With this caveat. The time, you know, the time between the invasion of Afghanistan, and the collapse of the Soviet Union was, you know, was many uh, 12, 15 years. Yeah, it was a long time. It didn't happen right away. That's number one. And number two, here, here's what I, what I it's dangerous to predict the future as a political scientist. By the way, the CIA is no good at it any either, but um, for my five years in government, but here's what I would say, knowing that country and uh, you know, I studied democratic transitions, not just Russia, mm-hmm. all over the world. You know, what's the more likely outcome that after 22 years of Putinism or let's say 25 years, however long he holds on, I think it's unlikely he falls, but, but, I will make one definitive prediction. Putin will not rule Russia forever. I know that Mm -hmm. for a fact. So whenever that moment comes, given what happened here, you know, elites, let me just pause for a minute. There's no winners from this war. There's literally no winners. Putin's not winning. The KGB's not winning. The military's not winning. The oligarchs are in shock. The middle class is now cut off. They're all worried about their kids that they thought were going to go to school at Oxford and Chicago and Stanford. Now what's going to happen to them? There this, this elite society in Russia is in complete shock right now. And remember, elite society, those are the ones that lead change. It's not Babushka's in Siberia watching Putin's propaganda. And so here's my prediction. Um, whenever Putin winds it down, what's more likely? Putin 2.0, where he anoints some guy that says, you know, just do what I did for the next 22 years or 25 years. Or the beginning of saying, you know, that that didn't work out so well. Let's think about a different relationship with the West, a different kind of leadership here. I think the latter is much more likely than the former. What I don't know um, is when that process begins to happen. Um, and, I, you know, I, I don't know when that is, but but I am with Voloja, Carter, Arizona. I think this is a positive moment for people like him, for people like Navalny, you know, uh, I think the 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 unraveling of Putinism uh has been accelerated by this horrific war in Ukraine, uh not consolidated.
1: Well, we should hold the celebration because there's a lot of suffering going on and the leaders you speak of are currently imprisoned. So Correct. one hopes that will change at some point. Ambassador Mike McFall, it's always great to be with you, my friend, and we'll be listening closely because you have your ear to the ground on all of this and uh, as I said I always count on you in matters Russian Eastern Europe and even basketball so (laughs) I'm still rooting for the Warriors this is our year we're back
2: we're back yes
1: well my team's going out tonight so I can join you after that okay All right. sounds good great to be with you great conversation bye bye thank you
0: thank you for listening to the Axe Files brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder-Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Rafina Ahmad, Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.